Amen. Thank you, guys. We are pilgrims on our way to glory, and that's what the Psalms of Ascent are actually all about. Pilgrim songs. We are going to have this Sunday and next Sunday, we'll complete our journey through the Psalms of Ascent. And today we're in Psalm 132. So if you have a Bible, turn there, Psalm 132. This is the longest of the Psalms of Ascent. This is God's Word. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the Mighty One of Jacob, I will not enter my house or go into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the Mighty One of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathath. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation and her saints will shout for joy. Then I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. The grass withers, the flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. God, we thank you for meeting with us and for already being with us through this service. And now we ask that you would open our hearts, open our minds, open our hands to receive glorious things from your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a world of promises. Anti-aging serum will take 20 years off of your life. These pills, this program will make you lose weight quickly. Politicians are all about promises. You you remember these words? Read my lips, no new taxes. I'm a uniter, not a divider. Yes, we can. We're going to make America great again. We're going to build back better. And after those people have been in office for a while, no matter how things are actually going, There's usually a speech or a press conference when something like this is pronounced. Mission accomplished. Promises made, promises kept. We're all about promises in this world. Um, In movies, this one always gets me. Uh, Somebody's going off to war and then they say to their wife or their child, I promise I'm going to come back. I always think, you know, that's not a good idea, man. You can't make that promise. Courtrooms, 
I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me, God. Weddings are about vows and promises. I do promise and covenant. Psalm 132 is about promises. It's about promises to God and God's promises to us. And if you think about it, the whole world, the whole Christian faith is about promises that are rooted in the trustworthy faithfulness of God that are ratified in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. We live in a world of broken promises. And so it's easy for us to say, yeah, right, sure, to be cynical about everything, life, organizations, even the church. And the problem isn't just out there. We're cynical about ourselves. We break promises to ourselves. And it's why it's so difficult for us to believe the gospel, but it's also why it is so precious and important for us. In a world of broken promises, is it possible that God actually loves us and cares for us? God keeps His promises. And that's what Psalm 132 is about. It is the longest of the Psalms of Ascent, I already said. It's rooted in the history of God's people. It keys off of David's kingship, his lineage. It turns on places and events in the history of Israel and God's faithfulness in the past and His promises in the future. But Psalm 132 actually also intersects with our world and our lives as well. So let's think about Psalm 132 together. The first thing that we need to see is our promises to God. We see that in verses 1 through 10. And one of the principles of Christianity, one of the patterns of Christianity, is this heartfelt commitment to love and to serve God. We already heard it once this morning. We love Him because He first loved us. Jesus said, take up my cross daily and follow me. How did Paul introduce himself in many of his letters? He said, bondservant, slave of Christ. We are not our own. We are, we've been bought with a price. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Redemption comes before uh, obedience. And so we're called to make promises to God, to commit to live in the light of His love, to walk in line with the gospel of Jesus Christ, to serve others in His name, to take the message across the street and around the world. And we do this not in order to earn standing with God or to achieve a righteousness of our own. No. We make promises to God because of His extravagant, free, audacious, incredible promises to us. God's grace changes everything. And that's what we see in David's life. And there are two things in particular about our promises to God that I want us to see. Beginning in verse 1, we have a reminder. A reminder to remember. We forget things. We set reminders on our phones. We set we, we write post-it notes and put them on the back door or on the di- dashboard of our car. But God doesn't forget. Yet He's given us access to Him to remind Him about His promises. Not because He forgets, but because we forget. Our kids do this all the time, right? They, said, they say, uh, 
Mom, Dad, you said if I ate all my vegetables that I could have a popsicle after dinner. Remember? And so here we have a reminder to remember. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor. The word covenant is not used here, but remember is often used in God's covenant promises. We'll see this in in a few weeks, Exodus chapter 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it wasn't, oh no, I forgot. I just remembered. No, that's not the type of remembering here. It's, I know, I haven't forgotten, I remember. And so Psalm 132 begins with a prayer and a plea for God to remember, to answer in David's favor for us. And we did the same thing, don't we? The psalmist is, they they would sing the covenant promises of God and we do the same when we sing, when we pray, O Lord our God, have mercy on us in Jesus' name because of what Christ has done for us. And then we see David's oath. We see our oath in verses 1 through 5. And You remember, David's covenant with God is recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And even though there's no mention of David's vow in 2 Samuel 7, we know that he had a passion, he had a desire to build the temple, to build a more permanent place, dwelling place for the covenant, uh, the Ark of the Covenant to come back to Jerusalem. And we read about that in 1 Chronicles chapter 28. I had it in my heart, he said, to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord, for the footstool of our God. I made preparations for building, but God said to me, you may not build a house for my name, for you're a man of war and have shed blood. And so, here's the question. As we think about our promises to God, our vows to God, why did David want to build the temple? Was it so he could make a name for himself, so he could show, and people would never forget that he was the best king in Israel? No. He wanted to build a temple to God because he had a passion for God's presence. David was driven by a passion for God's presence, a, a, a desire to find a more permanent resting place for God was about a passion for God's presence. He knew that God was transcendent. He knew that God's Uh, the earth is his footstool, the heaven is his throne, but remember the ark and the holy of holies and the tabernacle and the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, they all represented God's special presence, God's mercy, God's leading. And this promise that I will be your God And you will be my people. And the unfolding story of redemption is about God's relentless stop at nothing commitment to be with his people. And we see that that closeness, him moving toward us in the New Testament when Jesus became a man. And then when Jesus ascended into heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit to dwell among us, in us. And then at the end of the story, the new heavens and the new earth come down out of heaven. David's vow is an expression, it's a reflection of this glorious mystery that even though we're sinners, 
we can enjoy and be in the presence of Almighty God. David had a passion for God's presence. And two times in verses 1-5, through five, the Mighty One of Jacob is recorded and, and said, and it's a vow that's rooted in the past. God's blessing through Jacob to His children for His glory was to continue. And as, as you remember the history of God's people, there was a time where the Philistines took the ark. And God sent, uh, they had these tumors, and there was, a, there was all this stuff going on with them. Uh, their, their god, Dagon, fell on his face. His, his head fell off, their false god, in the presence of Almighty God. So they sent the ark back to Israel. They sent it to a place called Kiriath-Jerim in Ephrathah, near Bethlehem. And that's how we come to the next point in our sermon. Not only did David have a passion for God's presence, but he had a passion for worship. Look at me at verses 6-8. through eight. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jar. What's he talking about? He's talking about the Ark of the Covenant. He's talking about his desire not only to be in the presence of God, but to worship God. And so, it's interesting to see the the pronouns in verses 6 through 8 change from the pronouns of verses 1 through 5. Pronouns in verses 6 through 8 are we, let us go. Let's worship God. Let's go to Him. His power, His presence in Jar, which is another way of saying Kirath-Jerim. Come, Lord, dwell in the midst of Your people in the middle of our lives and help us to worship You. Let's go and meet with God. This is what we do every Sunday. Steve alluded to it when he called us into worship. Steve didn't call us into worship. God calls us into His presence. And then we respond through prayer and we say, God, would You meet with us? Would You be with us? And that's exactly what we see here. David said, let's go get the ark out of Abinadab's house, and let's bring it to Jerusalem so God may have a more permanent dwelling place. He also had a passion for priestly righteousness. Look at verse 9. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Hypocrisy is not a good look for Christians. Saying one thing and doing another, it's an especially ugly look on priests, and leaders. But a precious part of God's presence in worship is Him calling us to Himself and we can worship with a clear conscience. We can walk in His ways ultimately because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And notice also what verse 9 says, let your saints shout for joy. Joy is one of the most precious fruit of God's people. We can rejoice and sing and praise and give thanks with joy. These are all parts of our promise to God. David's vow to God. And then in verse 10, we have another reminder. Not because God forgets, but because we do. And so there are bookends here. For the sake of your servant David. Because of the promises you made to Him, because of the promises you made to our fathers, because of the promises you made to us, receive us and don't turn your face away from us. Brothers and sisters, David wanted 
to build a house for the Lord. He passionately wanted to be with the Lord and to worship the Lord. And my question for you this morning is, what is your dream? What is your passion? What is your sacrifice? What is your promise to God? Does anything come to mind? Shouldn't our promises and goals and hopes for God be part of our lives? What are you living for? What shapes your 5 and 10 and 20 year plan? To have more money? To live the most comfortable life possible? Or does it include, what can I do for God? With God and His people? I think about Paul in Philippians when he said, it was my joy that that my life was poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial offering of your faith. How is your life being poured out for God? And I want you to hear me clearly here. If you're struggling to find answers to those questions, I'm not calling you to work harder or try harder. I'm not giving you four steps to passion for God. I'm not suggesting a formula or an algorithm in those areas of our lives where we have apathy or sin or frustration or misguided passions or vision in our lives. There is one solution. God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Particularly the Gospel of God and His promises to us. They're really the only thing that can transform and shape and change our mind and our heart and our hands. We need to be transformed from one degree of glory to another by beholding the Lord, seeing the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is a key to going further in and further up. But I'm too messy, Pastor. I'm too broken and inadequate and damaged, and I can't do anything for God because I am a wreck. Join the club. So were Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb and David and me and you. God uses sinful people to accomplish His purposes, to display His glory, so that there can be no question, no doubt that the surpassing glory and greatness belongs to Him and not to us. What are your promises to God? We can make promises to God because God makes promises to us. Let's look at the second part of the sermon, verses 11 through 18. The Lord swore to David, which means because of God's covenant faithfulness, the Lord swore to us. The cornerstone of God's promises highlighted here are about David, his lineage, his kingdom. And we know that that promise is bigger than political power or clout. We learn more about it in some of the other Psalms. Remember Psalm 110, David's son says, is David's Lord. And this prophecy about David's line is really, you know, about the Messiah. It's about Jesus. Remember Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Jesus is 
the promised descendant of David, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. God's promises to David revolve around the person and work of Jesus Christ. Don't forget that. Camp out here. All of God's promises are yes and amen amen in Christ Jesus. And with God's promises to us, we have a reminder and an oath, just like David's and our promises to God. The reminder is this in verse 12, believe in me. If your sons keep my covenant and testimonies that I shall teach them. We keep covenant with God by believing that he has accomplished everything necessary for our salvation. Brothers and sisters, it's always been this way. Remember Genesis 15, 6? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. We are saved by grace alone, but that grace is not alone. It's accompanied with a new heart and a new life, shaped and guided by the gospel, a desire to obey God and love God. Not perfectly, we still struggle with sin, but our lives should be marked by repentance and forgiveness, and we're new creatures in Christ. So the reminder is, believe in me, my promises are real. And then God makes His oath. He reminds us of His oath. And the details of God's promises are unfolded here in Psalm 132. Look at verse 13. I will dwell with you. This is part of God's promise. I will dwell with you. I have chosen Zion. He has desired it for His dwelling place. I will dwell. I have desired it. This promise isn't ultimately about Jerusalem. It's about God's presence with His people and His desire to be with us. You know that God wants to be with us? Not because we've earned it. Not because we've all gotten A's on our spiritual report cards. He desires to dwell with us because we are His children, chosen in Him before the foundation of the world, purchased for Him with the righteous life and sacrificial death of His one and only Son. And He did all of this, not because He was lonely, not because He needed companionship. He did all of this out of His mere good pleasure and mercy and grace. God loves us because He loves us. A lot of us think deep down that God just puts up with us. That He's kind of like... Uh, yeah, fine, you, you can stay. Just, just don't get in the way. Don't break anything. Brothers and sisters, God loves you. God desires to dwell with you. He rejoices over us with singing and He quiets us with His love. Verse 14 reminds us another part of His promise is that He will bless and satisfy us. I will take care of you. I will give you what you need. Does this mean Christians never go through difficult times or struggle? Absolutely not. But what is the overwhelming testimony of us and believers throughout history and in the world? God is Jehovah Jireh, our provider. He takes care of us. And He not only takes care of us, but He he blesses us in such a way that we can help take care of one another. And so this is part of God's plan and playbook. It has been from the very beginning. If you need help, 
If we see others who need help, we rally around them and we support them with our resources. This is what it says in Galatians. So then, as you have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. We should look out for one another to help each other. And we should also have our eyes up to help people who haven't earned it, who don't deserve it, to show the mercy of God because God has been compassionate toward us. Another part of His promise is that I will clothe you with righteousness and joy. You see, this, we've already seen this idea in the first section. Here is God's promise. He explicitly answers and provides for our greatest need. He clothes His priests with salvation. He clothes His people with righteousness. Second. Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So we can be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that leads to joy. All her saints, verse 16, will shout for joy. You remember Nehemiah chapter 8? Yeah, we all remember Nehemiah 8. Uh, Okay, you may not, may not remember, but in Nehemiah 8, uh, Nehemiah and Ezra and the people of God are back into Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. And they have rebuilt the temple, they're rebuilding the wall, and Nehemiah and Ezra and others read the Word of God, and the people weep. The people weep out of gratitude and regret. And this is the response from Nehemiah and Ezra and the priests. Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. Don't be grieved, for this day is holy to the Lord our God. Fear clothes us with His righteousness and joy. And that's part of God's promise. The last thing we see is that God will reign over us. Verses 17 and 18. We've had so many bad leaders in our world and in our lives that were cynical about any authority or rule over us. But in reality, deep down, we want a king that we can follow. We want a king that we can trust. We want a leader that we can rely on and embrace fully God only, not only promises us His presence and provision, but He promises a loving ruler, Jesus Christ. Shorter Catechism 26 says this, How does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to Himself, in ruling and defending us, in restraining and conquering all His and our enemies. And so, it says in Psalm 132, there I will make a horn to sprout for David. It's about the power of God's rule. You think about the bull with the biggest horns probably runs uh, the pasture. You remember Zechariah's song from Luke chapter 1. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel for He has visited us. He's redeemed His people. He has raised a horn of salvation for us in, the, in His house, the house of David. Zechariah knew Psalm 132. He knew exactly what it meant. It also says that 
I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. God's explicit promise to David is that a descendant will sit on his throne, a lamp for Jerusalem, a light on his kingdom. Jesus Christ is a light of the world. Remember Zechariah's song again, Luke 1. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Why? To give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet in the path of peace. The guy sang about the crown of righteousness. Part of God's reign and promise to us is a shining crown. That's what we see in verse 18. Think about the crown jewels of England in the Tower of London, the light shining on them. God's promises, His promise is that He will rule and reign with power and sovereignty and beauty and judgment and compassionate. And He has the crown of righteousness. And He has that crown and it's been His from eternity past. You remember these words from the Apostle Paul near the end of his life? I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Why? Is it because Paul was incredible? He kept the law perfectly. He did it all right. No. See, brothers and sisters, as we think about God's promises to us and our promises to God, we have to turn to Jesus. We have to turn to the perfect life and sacrificial death and glorious resurrection. And we are, we are confronted with this reality. Promises made, promises kept. Jesus wore a crown of thorns on His head. A crown of shame and judgment and guilt and humiliation so that we can wear the crown of righteousness. Isaiah 53 tells us, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Promises made, promises kept for us, to us. Brothers and sisters, Psalm 132 is real. And we can make promises to God because of God's great promises to us. Remember at the end of the Bible in Revelation 24, we get a glimpse of the worship in heaven and the 24 elders that surround the throne, they bow down and what do they do? They take their crowns, crowns that have been given to them by Jesus Christ, and they cast them at His feet. And they worship. And we will do the same one day. Let's start now. Let's start now. Living lives, living sacrifices to God. O oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose, and let my song forever be.
My only boast is you. Let's pray. God, thank you for your promises to us. Would you give us vision and faith to commit to you, to make promises to you, relying on Jesus in the process. We pray in his name. Amen. Let's stand together.